Section 1 of Psychological Warfare This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger Part 1. Definition and History Chapter 1a. Historic Examples of Psychological Warfare Psychological warfare is waged before, during, and after war. It is not waged against the opposing psychological warfare operators, it is not controlled by the laws, usages, and customs of war, and it cannot be defined in terms of terrain, order of battle, or named engagements. It is a continuous process. Success or failure is often known only months or years after the execution of the operation. Yet success, though incalculable, can be overwhelming, and failure, though undetectable, can be mortal. Psychological warfare does not fit readily into familiar concepts of war. Military science owes much of its precision and definiteness to its dealing with a well-defined subject, the application of organized, lawful violence. The officer or soldier can usually undertake his task of applying mass violence without having to determine upon the enemy. The opening of war, recognition of neutrals, the listing of enemies, proclamation of peace, such problems are considered political and outside the responsibility of the soldier. Even in the application of force short of war, the soldier proceeds only when the character of the military operation is prescribed by higher, that is, political, authorities, and after the enemies are defined by lawful and authoritative command. In one field only, psychological warfare, is there endless uncertainty as to the very nature of the operation. Psychological warfare, by the nature of its instruments and its mission, begins long before the declaration of war. Psychological warfare continues after overt hostilities have stopped. The enemy often avoids identifying himself in psychological warfare. Much of the time he is disguised as the voice of home, of God, of the church, of the friendly press. Offensively, the psychological warfare operator must fight antagonists who never answer back, the enemy audience. He cannot fight the one enemy who is in plain sight, the hostile psychological warfare operator, because the hostile operator is greedily receptive to attack. Neither success nor defeat are measurable factors. Psychological strategy is planned along the edge of nightmare. The Understanding of Psychological Warfare In a formal approach to this mysterious part of the clean-cut process of war, it might be desirable to start with Euclidean demonstrations, proceeding from definition to definition until the subject matter had been delimited by logic. Alternatively, it might be interesting to try a historical approach, describing the development of psychological warfare through the ages. The best approach is perhaps afforded by a simplification of both a logical and historical approach. For concrete examples, it is most worthwhile to look at instances of psychological warfare taken out of history down to World War II. Then, the definitions and working relationships can be traced, and, with these in mind, a somewhat more detailed and critical appraisal of World Wars I and II organizations and operations can be undertaken. If a historian or philosopher picks up this book, he will find much with which to quarrel. But for the survey of so hard to define a subject, this may be a forgivable fault. Psychological warfare and propaganda are each as old as mankind, but it has taken modern specialization to bring them into focus as separate subjects. The materials for their history lie scattered through thousands of books, and it is therefore impossible to brief them. Any reader contemplating retirement from the army to a sedentary life is urged to take up this subject. Footnote 
Histories of Warfare, of Politics, Though There Are No Good Recent Ones, Edward Jenks's Little Book Being Half a Century Out of Date, of Political Theory, especially the excellent though dissimilar volumes by G. H. Sabine and by G. E. C. Catlin, of Particular Countries, of Diplomacy, of Religion, and even of Literature, all cast a certain amount of light on the subject. No writer known to the author specializes in the topic of historical propaganda. None takes up the long-established historical role of nonviolent persuasion in warfare. Some of the sociologists and anthropologists, such as Karl Mannheim, Max Weber, Talcott Parsons, Jeffrey Gorer, Ruth Benedict, to mention a few at random, have presented approaches which would justify re-evaluations of history in a way useful to propaganda students, but they have not yet persuaded the historians to do the work. End footnote. A history of propaganda would provide not only a new light on many otherwise odd or trivial historical events, it would throw genuine illumination on the process of history itself. There are, however, numerous instances which can be cited to show applications of psychological warfare. The Use of Panic by Gideon One of the earliest, by traditional reckoning 1245 B.C. applications, was Gideon's use of the lamps and pitchers in the great battle against the Midianites. The story is told in the seventh chapter of the Book of Judges. Gideon was in a tactically poor position. The Midianites outnumbered him and were on the verge of smiting him very thoroughly. Ordinary combat methods could not solve the situation, so Gideon, acting upon more exalted inspiration than is usually vouchsafed modern commanders, took the technology and military formality of his time into account. Retaining three hundred selected men, he sought for some device which would cause real confusion in the enemy host. He knew well that the tactics of his time called for every century of men to have one light-carrier and one torch-bearer for the group. By equipping three hundred men with a torch and a trumpet each, he could create the effect of thirty thousand. Since the lights could not be turned on and off with switches, like ours, the pitchers concealed them, thus achieving the effect of suddenness. He had his three hundred men equipped with lamps and pitchers. The lamps were concealed in the pitchers, each man carrying one, along with a trumpet. He lined his forces in appropriate disposition around the enemy camp at night, and had them, himself setting the example, break the pitchers all at the same time, while blowing like mad on the trumpets. The Midianites were startled out of their sleep and their wits. They fought one another throughout their own camp. The Hebrew chronicler modestly gives credit for this to the Lord. Then the Midianites gave up altogether and fled, and the men of Israel pursued after the Midianites. That settled the Midianite problem for a while. Later, Gideon finished Midian altogether. This type of psychological warfare device, the use of unfamiliar instruments to excite panic, is common in the history of all ancient countries. In China, the emperor usurper Wang Mang on one occasion tried to destroy the Hunnish tribes with an army that included heavy detachments of military sorcerers, even though the Han military emperor had found orthodox methods the most reliable. Wang Mang got whipped at this, but he was an incurable innovator, and in 23 AD, while trying to put down some highly successful rebels, he collected all the animals out of the imperial menagerie and sent them along to scare the enemy. Tigers, rhinoceri, and elephants were included. The rebels hit first, killing the imperial general Wang Sun, and in the excitement the animals got loose in the imperial army where they panicked the men. A hurricane which happened to be raging at the same time enhanced the excitement. Not only were the imperial troops defeated, but the military propaganda of the rebels was so jubilant in tone and so successful in effect 
that the standard propaganda theme, Depress and Unnerve the Enemy Commander, was fulfilled almost to excess on Wang Mang. Here is what happened to him after he noted the progress of the enemy. Quote, A profound melancholy fell upon the emperor. It undermined his health. He drank to excess, ate nothing but oysters, and let everything happen by chance. Unable to stretch out, he slept sitting up on a bench. End quote. Wang Mang was killed in the same year, and China remained without another economic new deal until the time of Wang Anshi, AD 1021 to 1086, a thousand years later. Better psychological warfare would have changed history. Field Propaganda of the Athenians and the Han A more successful application of psychological warfare is recorded in the writings of Herodotus, the Greek historian. Quote, Themistocles, having selected the best sailing ships of the Athenians, went to the place where there was water fit for drinking, and engraved upon the stones inscriptions, which the Ionians, upon arriving the next day at Artemisium, read. The inscriptions were to this effect. Men of Ionia, you do wrong in fighting against your fathers and helping to enslave Greece. Rather, therefore, come over to us, or, if you cannot do that, withdraw your forces from the contest and entreat the Carians to do the same. But if neither of these things is possible, and you are bound by too strong a necessity, yet in action when we are engaged, behave ill on purpose, remembering that you are descended from us, and that the enmity of the barbarians against us originally sprang from you. End quote. Footnote. The author's attention to this reference was drawn by an unpublished, undated typescript article in the War Department files by Lieutenant Colonel Samuel T. Mackall, Infantry. End footnote. This text is very much like leaflets dropped during World War II on reluctant enemies, such as the Italians, the Chinese puppet troops, and others. Compare this Greek text with figure 5. Note that the propagandist tries to see things from the viewpoint of his audience. His air of reasonable concern for their welfare creates a bond of sympathy, and by suggesting that the Ionians should behave badly in combat, he lays the beginning of another line, the propaganda to the Persians, Quote, black unquote, propaganda, making the Persians think that any Ionian who was less than perfect was a secret Athenian sympathizer. The appeal is sound by all modern standards of the combat leaflet. Another type of early military propaganda was the political denunciation which, issued at the beginning of war, could be cited from then on as legal and ethical justification for one side or the other. In the Chinese San Kuo novel, which has probably been read by more human beings than any other work of fiction, there is preserved the alleged text of the proclamation by a group of loyalist pro-Han rebels on the eve of military operations, about A.D. 200. The text is interesting because it combines the following techniques, all of them sound. 1. Naming the specific enemy. 2. Appeal to the, quote, better people, unquote. 3. Sympathy for the common people. 4. Claim of support for the legitimate government. 5. Affirmation of one's own strength and high morale. 6. Invocation of unity. 7. Appeal to religion. The issuance of the proclamation was connected with rather elaborate formal ceremony. Quote, the house of Han has fallen upon evil days. The bonds of imperial authority are loosened. The rebel minister, Tang Cho, takes advantage of the discord to work evil, and calamity falls upon honorable families. Cruelty overwhelms simple folk. We, Xiao and his confederates, fearing for the safety of the imperial prerogatives, have assembled military forces to rescue the state. We now pledge ourselves to exert our whole strength and to act in concord to the utmost limits of our powers. There must be no disconcerted or selfish action. 
Should any depart from this pledge, may he lose his life and leave no posterity. Almighty heaven and universal Mother Earth and the enlightened spirits of our forefathers, be ye our witnesses. End quote. Any history of any country will yield further examples of this kind of material. Whenever it was consciously used as an adjunct to military operations, it may appropriately be termed military propaganda. Emphasis on ideology. In a sense, the experience of the past may, unfortunately, provide a clue to the future. The last two great wars have shown an increasing emphasis on ideology or political faith, see definition page 30 below, as driving forces behind warfare, rather than the considerations of coldly calculated diplomacy. Wars become more serious and less gentlemanly. The enemy must be taken into account not merely as a man, but as a fanatic. To the normal group loyalty of any good soldier to his army, right or wrong, there is added the loyalty to the ism, or the leader. Warfare thus goes back to the wars of faith. It is possible that techniques from the Christian Mohammedan or from the Protestant Catholic wars of the past could be re-examined with a view to establishing those parts of their tested experience which may seem to be psychologically and militarily sound in our own time. How fast can converts be made from the other side? In what circumstances should an enemy word of honor be treated as valid? How can heretics, today read subversive elements, be uprooted? Does the enemy faith have weak points which permit enemy beliefs to be turned against personnel at the appropriate times? What unobjectionable forms should leaflets and broadcasts follow in mentioning subjects which are reverenced by the enemy, but not by ourselves? The expansion of the Islamic faith and empire provides a great deal of procedural information which cannot be neglected in our time. It has been said that men's faith should not be destroyed by violence, and that force alone is insufficient to change the minds of men. If this were true, it would mean that Germany can never be denazified and that there is no hope that the democratic peoples captured by totalitarian powers can adjust themselves to their new overlords, or, if adjusted, can be converted back to free principles. In reality, warfare by Mohammed's captains and successors demonstrated two principles of long-range psychological warfare, which are still valid today. A people can be converted from one faith to the other if given the choice between conversion and extermination, stubborn individuals being rooted out. To effect the initial conversion, participation in the public ceremonies and formal language of the new faith must be required. Sustained counterintelligence must remain on the alert against backsliders, but formal acceptance will become genuine acceptance if all public media of expression are denied the vanquished faith. If immediate wholesale conversion would require military operations that were too extensive or severe, the same result can be effected by toleration of the objectionable faith, combined with the issuance of genuine privileges to the new preferred faith. The conquered people are left in the private, humble enjoyment of their old beliefs and folkways, but all participation in public life, whether political, cultural, or economic, is conditioned on acceptance of the new faith. In this manner, all uprising members of the society will move in a few generations over to the new faith in the process of becoming rich, powerful, or learned. What is left of the old faith will be a gutter superstition, possessing neither power nor majesty. These two rules worked once in the rise of Islam. They were applied again by Nazi overlords during World War II, the former in Poland, the Ukraine, and Belarusia, the latter in Holland, Belgium, Norway, and other Western countries. The rules will probably be seen in action again. The former process is difficult and bloody, but quick. The latter is as sure as a steamroller.
If Christians or Democrats or progressives, whatever free men may be called, are put in a position of underprivilege and shame for their beliefs, and if the door is left open to voluntary conversion so that anyone who wants to can come over to the winning side, the winning side will sooner or later convert almost everyone who is capable of making trouble. In the language of Vilfredo Pareto, this would probably be termed capture of the rising elite. In the language of present-day Marxists, this would be described as utilization of potential leadership cadres from historically superseded classes. In the language of practical politics, it means cut in the smart boys from the opposition so that they can't set up a racket of their own. Figure 1. A Basic Form of Propaganda This American leaflet, issued during the Philippine landings, was dropped on inhabited Philippine areas in order to obtain local civilian cooperation with the landing forces. It can be called the civilian action type. End of figure one. Figure two, Nazi troop morale leaflet. In this leaflet used on the Italian front in 1944, the Nazis did not call for any specific action from their American GI readers. Their aim was merely depression of American morale for future exploitation by action propaganda. Note the extreme simplicity of the message. Throughout World War II, the Nazis were misled by their own tendentious political intelligence reports and consequently overestimated the kind and degree of American opposition to Franklin D. Roosevelt. They mistook normal complaint for treasonable sedition. Hence, leaflets such as this seemed practical to the Germans. End of figure two. Figure three, one of the outstanding leaflets of the war. Prepared in 1945 for distribution by B-29s operating over Japan, this leaflet lists 11 Japanese cities which were marked for destruction. The leaflet is apparently of the civilian action type, calling on Japanese civilians to save their own lives. At the same time, it had the effect of shutting down 11 strategically important cities, thus hurting the Japanese war effort, while giving the Americans a reputation for humanity and also refuting enemy charges that we undertook indiscriminate bombing. End of figure three. Figure four. The pass which brought them in. Germans liked things done in an official and formal manner, even in the midst of chaos, catastrophe, and defeat. The Allies obliged and gave the Germans various forms of very official-looking surrender passes, of which this is one. The original is printed in red and has banknote-type engraving, which makes it resemble a soap premium coupon. Western Front, 1944-45, issued by Schaeff. End of Figure 4. Figure 5. Revolutionary Propaganda when revolution favors one side or the other in war, revolutionary propaganda becomes an instrument which is used by one constituted government against another. This leaflet was issued by the Azad Hind Fauj, Free India Army, of the Japanese puppet Supas Chandra Bose, Singapore, then called Shonan, 1943 and 1944. The leaflet avoids direct reference to the Japanese and is therefore block propaganda. Its theme is simple. The British are alleged to eat while the Hindus starve. At the time, this argument had some plausibility. There was famine in Bengal, but no white men were found among the thousands of emaciated dead. End of figure five. Figure six, propaganda for illiterates. Propaganda reached out for the mass audience in World War II. Some of the most interesting developments in this line were undertaken by CBI theater facilities and their Japanese competitors. The leaflet shown above is designed to tell its story in Hindustani Devanagari script or in Romanized Hindustani, to Indians who could read either form, and in pictures to the illiterates. It starts with the Union Jack, and ends with the Congress flag used by the puppet pro-Japanese Indian leader Supas Chandra Bose. End of figure six. Figure seven, propaganda through news. 
News is one of the best carriers of psychological warfare to the enemy. One of these newspapers is directed by the Allies to the German troops in the Aegean Islands, the other by the Germans to the Americans in France. Of the two, the Allied paper in German is the more professional job. Note the separation of appeals from the news, the greater newsiness of the news columns, and the explanation provided for third-party civilians in their own Greek language, top right. End of figure 7. End of section 1. Read by Eli Bishop, San Francisco, March 6, 2021.